Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we're launching a new two-part series with Michael McGrath, the CEO of Oasis M&A here in Australia. For the first part of the series, we're going to talk about Michael's own business growth and sale experience and the lessons he's learned when reflecting on it with hindsight. Then in part two, we take a closer look at how Oasis approaches M&A transactions differently from other broking firms. I think this is a particularly useful two-part episode for business owners who are considering an exit through sale into the future and for brokers and advisors working within this space who are looking at new ways to add value to their clients during the deal-making process. So keep listening and we'll get right into it. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to The Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Well, hi, Michael. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us on The Deal Room today. Pleasure. Great, great, great. Now, look, we have got so much that I want to talk to you about, but we're and we're recording this in a few different parts so we can provide a few different perspectives of you, Michael, um, and your different experiences in the area of sales and acquisitions. But today, for this episode, I'd really like to start with your own experience on the ground as someone who built and sold your own business. So maybe if I can take you back in time. Maybe if you wouldn't mind, let's start there. And maybe can you give me a bit of an overview of that background and what was that original business that you're involved in? Yeah, sure. So, okay, if, if I go way back, um, I mean, I'm pretty old, so I'm talking about 1984 here. My family were in construction and the only thing I'd figured out by the time I was 21 is that I hated construction. So, I, I decided to come to Australia mainly because of the weather on a one-year working holiday visa. And I was really kind of looking to try and figure out what I was going to do with my life. And then I ended up working in a hotel, which has since been knocked down, called the Freeway Hotel in South Perth. Uh, after I ended up with a second job after working in that hotel, I used to deliver pizzas in the evening. And that's where I really came up with the idea of opening a pizza home delivery company back in the UK. So I spent six months learning the business in Australia and then completely nicked the idea and went back and uh, thought, well, this would be a good thing to do here. And it was quite new back then. So we ended up opening a first shop in Cannock in Staffordshire, I think 86 or 87. Yeah, and then we it went very well, and we ended up opening 84 of them over the space of about five years. And we became number two in the market. So I needed some capital. So the first deal I did was I raised some capital after about 28 stores with the bank's didn't want to lend us any more money. So I raised £650,000 sterling from a venture capitalist called Russell Smith, who ran a big ledger company in England called Cunic PLC. Anyway, he lent me some money. I did a deal with him, and then that, that moved us on to the next stage, and he had 26% of the stock. And then we eventually sold the business in '92 to Scott's Hospitality, who had a brand in the UK called Perfect Pizza. They were number one with 120 stores, and we were number two with 84 and the network complemented each other. But that was really my first look at M&A close up. 
And what I learned from that experience is I didn't do a very good job of selling the business because I think we undersold it, really. I thought they were the only game in town. And we didn't go to the market more broadly, and we didn't understand there was probably appetite in the U.S. Uh, there were some big fast food chains in the U.S. that would have paid handsomely for that footprint. And, and one of the main reasons we, we didn't go wide is I didn't want franchisees and staff and management and suppliers to know that we were thinking of selling. So I ended up kind of doing that deal. And subsequently, we've learned that 90% of owners sell to the first or second person that knocks on the door, provided that knock on the door coincides with them wanting to consider their options. So so that's really how most private deals get done, actually, still Mm. today, Mm. because of the fear of, you know, they think, well, at least no one else, they may not be the best buyer, but at least no no one's going to find out that we're considering it. It's such an interesting fear because I do see this play out a lot and and I see a lot of deals become extremely complicated because of that issue. Why is it? Can you talk to us about the psychology of why? Why don't you want, at that point, why didn't you want people to know? Uh, Well, look, I mean, uh, again, we're going back in time. So this was 1991. Interest rates were 16 17%. There was a real cash crunch on. And that stock market crash in 87 had really caught up with the rest of the economy. And anyone who had a house back then, you know, their, their interest rates are 15%, 16%. I mean, imagine that. Imagine interest rates are 16% now. So there was a real cash crunch on. And the risks that we were running as a business were quite high. And, and my family had, you know, my father and my uncle had their houses secured against an overdraft. And I, I just was uncomfortable with the level of risk we were running. But I didn't want staff and management and franchisees to find out that we're thinking of selling because you never sell until you actually sign a contract and get a check. Could have fallen over. So mm. I didn't want to disturb and disrupt what we were building and what we were doing, which is fairly delicately balanced. We didn't want people thinking there was a problem with the business. And I think that's a very widespread attitude. Owners don't want others finding out that they might be considering selling because it's actually quite destabilizing. What's your perspective on that now, though, you know, with many, many more years of experience under your belt in this environment? What are your thoughts on it now? Well, I think it's a very valid concern, but it needs managing. And I think to sell to the person who knocks on the door, the odds of that being the right buyer who's going to pay the right price on the right terms are quite long. You really need to look at a broader marketplace. But the concern is valid. So you need to find a way to look at that marketplace intelligently and discreetly without alerting the world to the fact that you might want to sell. And that's one of the things that Oasis M&A, the founder of Oasis in London, John Wilcox-Jones, back in 1984, he figured that out. He figured a way of going to a much wider market, but actually not telling that market who the client was that he was representing. In fact, in 85% of our communication with the market, we don't even tell them we're representing anybody. We're simply establishing who's actively acquiring at the moment and we're establishing what, what are they looking for. And then we're measuring that up at a high level with, okay, does that match up with our client's asset? Because very rarely will somebody be talked into buying a business. So you're really only looking for those people who are actively acquiring, they've got capability to acquire. And then you're looking, well, what are you looking for? And yeah, if they're looking for A, B, and C in your E, F, and G, you really need to close that down. So 90% of the people we go to when we're representing a client, we qualify them out without them even knowing they've been qualified out. Because we're actually what they're looking for is not 
what our clients' business can give them. If you press that and pursue that, it ends up not going well. You either get a very low ball price, it's opportunistic, or the terms are rubbish, right? So th- th- that's not a good place to go. But on the other hand, if you've got someone who says, I'm acquiring, I'm active, and I'm looking for A, B, and C, and this is why I'm looking for them, and that matches up at a high level, now you've got a conversation worth pursuing. And maybe at the right stage, that might be someone worth revealing the client's identity to. That's a much smaller list. So if we take that and you've obviously got far more defined view of how to run this process now than you had back then, you know, the first time you were really seriously involved in the process, what would you have done? So practically, what would you have done differently? And, and actually, how about we start with what you actually did? So what I did was I got, I got a knock on the door from Perfect Pizza and I spoke to Russell Smith and the board that we'd been approached and I told them I wanted to pursue it and then we ended up having a clandestine meeting in a hotel room and we kind of broadly agreed terms and sort of finalised those in an offer and went into sort of several months of due diligence and contract negotiations and then, you know, six months later we had a deal done. The commercial terms were quite quick, basically, you're saying. Yeah, and they were the only game in town. There was no competitive tension. We hadn't looked at the alternatives. How do you price a business? Very complicated. Businesses can be worth significantly different amounts to different people. So what we should have done, I think, was hire Oasis in London, which I did several years later when my brother and I were looking to sell a business we owned in recruitment. That's what was my first engagement with Oasis. We hired them and we watched them go to work and execute on the process that I just described. And we saw a much better set of outcomes. And it was much less stressful and it was organized and it was a very competitive industry. And my brother thought he knew all the players because he was running it. I was a non-exec. He thought he knew everyone, but Oasis kept finding buyers he'd never heard of. That's when I switched on and realized what a poor job we'd done previously. And, you know, to quantify that, we probably sold it for half what it was worth. Wow. And I wonder if part of what drives that, you know, the psychology that drives that, it's clear you're a deal maker. I can hear that in what you're talking about. I wonder if the extent to which, you know, someone's built a company, they're a deal maker, and they just think, well, you know, I've got this, I can do this because I know how to do a good deal. Is that part of the psychology, you think? Yes, I think so. And I think the instinct of an entrepreneur is to be very sceptical of advisors They're type A types, type A personalities, strong-willed, and that's work for them right up until when they can start considering an exit. Trouble is, if you look at the work around an exit, it's extremely specialised. What I say to owners is, when was the last time that you did something for the first time? And that's really what an owner's doing when he decides to represent himself. Yeah, so true. And going back to yourself then, because this question of, you know, how should I value the business? I think it's that initial question that a business owner looking at sale asks. So how did you deal with that at the point that you were of that first sale? Well, look, the first sale was they offered us what seemed like a lot of money and it was the only offer we had and we took it. Yeah, okay. Uh (laughs) We negotiated on some of the terms, but we as a board took the offer and I think we were too close to it. We needed a third party to, you know, talk to us about similar deals that have been done, similar transactions, you know, similar sorts of circumstances, what sort of valuations were being paid elsewhere. 
we needed somebody to begin to look at surfacing alternative interest. So there was competitive tension. And instead, we kind of gave it away, really. Now, I was 28 at the time. I was very young. And whilst I had a bit of a track record growing a you know, retail, leisure retail business, I had no experience of selling business. And in fact, the people on my board, even Russell Smith, really didn't. So it was a bit dad's army. And look, we were going into bat against experienced, tough acquirers who knew how to play the game. That's just an unfair fight. In fact, we spent most of our life levelling that playing field for our clients. The David and Goliath story, really. Because generally you're selling to a much larger acquirer. Yeah. I guess also just the one area that I also wanted to drive into reflecting back is the preparation of the business for sale. It sounds like this buyer came to you. So I'm, I'm interested in the extent to which you had an exit plan before before they came to you and the extent to which you thought about getting your business in, you know, effectively a sale-ready state. Was that a thought process at the time? Not really. I mean, the story is that we built the business very rapidly. We drove headlong into a credit crunch in the late 80s. The banks changed the rules of the game, which they can do at any time. And we had to do some pretty clever maneuvering to survive. So we were more in survival mode, serving what we got than in like, you know, okay, let's all get clever around an exit. But we weren't thinking about an exit really until I had the knock on the door and then I weighed up the option against continuing on and the risk associated with that. And the key risk for me was that, you know, my father and my uncle had their personal properties personally guaranteed against a £750,000 sterling overdraft, which I had no quick way of dealing with. And the bank were putting us under a degree of pressure. So that was really what was going on for me. I mean, more broadly, for me, preparation for an exit is really just about running the business well, running it in the interests of the current shareholders on all the key measurements. If you do that, then it, the business is likely to prove attractive to other future potential shareholders. So the notion of, I think, just building and running and operating a really good business with a commitment to continuous and never-ending improvement is really what preparing for an exit is all about. Now, there are one or two areas which you might consider perhaps a bit more specialist than that. One would be your tax affairs, particularly around structure. So you might want to look at that separately, right? But you can get an accountant to do that for you. And probably if you if you get into that age where you consider an exit, you might want to have a look at capital expenditure projects that go out three to five years or buying commercial property. Some of that might not be compatible from a time perspective with an exit. But I think outside of that, you're really just looking about running the business well and running it safely mm. and securely in your own interests. And, and that includes having your paperwork in good order and making sure leases are in really good, really good shape. But what I would say is that a good strategic acquirer who's in the trade and has got a high degree of experience is going to look past some of the curly stuff that perhaps isn't 100% there. Never yet sold a perfect business. All the businesses we sell are not perfect and they've got certain things that are not in place. Or, but most strategic acquirers are looking past that. That's a good point, though you're talking about strategic acquirers here. And I guess implicit in what you're talking about is somewhere that provides competitive tension. Because if businesses are in the position where they're forced into a position where they really feel they need to sell, but you're in a position where you're selling to someone who perhaps is 
going to be more finicky about all of the finer detail, there's going to be issues for you in that in that play throughout the deal, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, if you're going to think about selling your business and you're an owner, you really need to know what your plan B is. And a lot of your strength in negotiating the right price and terms, it's not just price, it's also terms, is the more well-defined your plan B is, the, the stronger you can negotiate. Now, whether that's alternative buyers, which is great, or I'll just continue running the business. But in any event, that, that there needs to be a reasonably well-defined plan B. And, you know, having some representation, having some knowledge and experience and grey hairs around can really help with that, I think. And in fact, I think if we had a stronger team back in 1992, we would have bought Perfect Pizza. We were better than them. We were a stronger business than them on all the fundamentals. And I certainly think that was an option that was completely out of my orbit Yeah, right. at the time. But in fact, with the benefit of experience, you know, that, that could well have been possible. Such a great example of being too close and not being able to see the big opportunity maybe that's there, at least for consideration. As you say, you didn't even see at the time. I think it's really such a good example. I guess just in a few parting messages here, I think it's pretty clear your advice to um, anyone who's listening into owners or even indeed we have a lot of advisors, like for example, accountants who listen into these podcasts. So is there anything in summarising your experience in that, I guess, sale number one versus sale number two for you that advisors and, and businesses who maybe find themselves in this situation at the moment should be looking out for? Yes. Look, I think you've got to not necessarily avoid selling to the guy who knocks on the door, but you've got to look at considering a wider market than that. But you've also got to do that discreetly and intelligently. And I think if you can do that, you increase your odds of getting a better price in terms. So we would say go wide, but make sure that that's done discreetly and that the world and his wife don't discover that you might be for sale because it's very destabilizing. Getting good representation from people who know what they're doing and have got a track record and, and understand your sector and your business. I mean, they don't have to be able to run the business, but they do have to know what's going on in that sector. Yeah, and putting somebody between you and the buyer can be quite useful. So you maintain control, but you don't necessarily get too involved too early, particularly while qualifications going on. That's the biggest single error we see is that vendors get too involved with the buyer too early because mm. it starts out very nicely. You're great. We're great. The world's great. We call it tea and cakes, but that doesn't mean they're going to buy the business. And you need to move into qualification mode rather than let that just play out. Often we see people getting involved in premature due diligence, effectively. So what you're seeking, if someone approaches you, what you're seeking is, as early as possible, some non-binding indicative price and terms. What are you proposing? The quicker you can get to that, even if it's subject to due diligence, subject to contract, subject to the weather, you need something in black and white. And what we see is buyers saying, ah, oh, We'll get to that later, but we need, here's a big list of information we need. Well, actually, if you're experienced and you know what you're doing, you don't need that much information to provide a, a term sheet or a letter of intent or an indicative offer. You need that because only then will you know whether the guy's in the ballpark. And if he's in the ballpark, then you can move to the next stage. Whereas what you don't want to be doing is prematurely giving sensitive information away mm. that actually isn't necessary yeah. at that point. 
And we would think that's a key issue and a key problem we see being played out time and time. And sometimes it can take six or nine months. There's an old adage, you buy slow and you sell fast. So if you've agreed terms and, and you've got a buyer and you're happy with it, get it done. If you're buying and we work on the buy side, buyers are slowing the whole thing down. They're getting more and more information. They've got other deals that they're looking at. There ain't nothing happening till it's happened. So why would you give up sensitive commercial information like lists of customers is a classic. Mm. You know, you did $10 million last year. Can you give us a, a list of who, who your customers are? No, no. <laughs> maybe types of customer, maybe customer blinded with, with numbers, you know, or A, B, C, D. You've got to establish what are they trying to achieve by asking for that. Are they trying to achieve what's the concentration of revenue like? Well, you can give them that without giving them the names of the customers. And I could go on and on, but that's a key issue. Don't lift the bonnet when you don't need to. Well, I'll tell you what, Mike, you have given us such a fabulous overview, not just of your own experiences. And and I do like to drive into experiences of people who have been there and done that because I think quite often providing advice in a vacuum without having done it, you know, is a different experience to people who've really been there and felt the pain (laughs) and in hindsight can see what they can provide to their clients moving forward that um, helps to fill the gaps that they had initially. So it's been such a um, great walk through uh, your, your background story and I'm really looking forward to have you in again so that we can hear a bit how Oasis deals with their clients and, and your approach that's a little bit different. Sure. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm looking forward to having you back on episode two. Pleasure. Well, that concludes the first half of our two-part series with Michael McGrath of Oasis M&A, where we talked all about Michael's own experience on the ground as someone who has built and sold his own business. We also drilled into the psychology of a dealmaker and what it really means to prepare for exit. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please join us again next week for part two with Michael, where we'll take a closer look at how Oasis works with their unique approach to deal making. And if you're not already subscribed to The Deal Room, make sure you do that. It's super easy. Just head over to Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcast player and hit the subscribe button for The Deal Room podcast in order to get notifications straight to your phone whenever a new episode is out. Well, that's it. Thanks again for listening in. This has been Joanna Oki and The Deal Room podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. 
Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. Thank you.